Acts chapter 5. Today we'll be looking at verses 11 through 16. We'll read that passage. Acts chapter 5 beginning in verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. I was corresponding with a fellow who had visited with us here at Fellowship Bible Church for a number of weeks and months, um, but hadn't been here for a while, so I, I kind of touched base with him and and uh, learned that he was attending a, a new church plant in, uh, in Greenville. And I, my first thought was that's exactly what Greenville needs, another church. <laughs> but then I remembered that Fellowship Bible Church was actually a church plant back in the early 80s. It was a split off from uh, another larger church. Um, and realized that most of the churches that probably we have attended throughout the years have been some sort of plant or split from some other church. And the thought kind of occurred to me as I was studying for this passage and corresponding with, with this gentleman was, does anybody take the church seriously anymore? Certainly in the movies and in the literature of the modern era, the church is generally ridiculed and, and made fun of. Not only the church and, re and religious leaders, but also people who are religious. They are portrayed as, as weak-willed or as tyrannical. Yeah. Those two are, are the general caricatures that we see of, of religious people in film and, and in writings. And within Western evangelicalism, I think it's a fair summary, and it's a summary of, of, of most commentators on the church, that it's a mess. It's frankly immense. Western evangelicalism is basically a formless, nomadic entity of people who profess belief in Jesus Christ of some sort, moving from church to church or no church at all. And that's the general outward appearance of the church to the world. And sadly, I think it's the inward reality of the church to many who are, who are in the leadership of the church. So does anybody take the church seriously anymore? In my experience, uh, just as, as a pastor in a Reformed Baptist church, I have seen you know, committed Baptists attending Presbyterian churches because the teaching is better, even though the, 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 the doctrine of infant baptism is anathema to them. They can overlook that because their children are grown and it doesn't matter anymore. I've seen reformed families, both Presbyterian and Baptist, 
send their children to Armenian dispensational schools because the teachers are good. Ending up in those students and those children with a horrendous conflict within their minds between what they hear on the Lord's Day and what they hear Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. But that's okay because it's a good education and it'll get them into a good college. There is a, a notable exodus, and by notable I mean it, it's been written about quite a bit, a notable exodus of, of Protestants to Roman Catholicism and to Eastern Orthodoxy because of the stability of those ancient churches. The symbolism, the, 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 the ceremony is so different than the basic chaos of the average Protestant church. So, in a word, you know, the church is a mess. And so does anybody take the church seriously anymore? Well, I think very few people in the church today, practically speaking, take the church seriously. And most people in the churches today are more concerned about losing their jobs than losing their church. And they'll make their decisions in life not based on their faith, but on their income. And that, that's a reality, a sad reality, because every promotion, as we know, is definitely from the Lord, right? Because it's a promotion. The Lord never demotes anybody. He only promotes people to higher levels of involvement in their corporation and more absence from their family. That's definitely what the Lord does. Does anybody take the church seriously anymore? Well, there are those today who take the church seriously. Political pollsters, for example. Because the church has become a powerful voting block. And evangelicals who are generally conservative are courted by political candidates in order to get their vote. So political pollsters have been taking the church seriously for at least 40 years. Okay, so I'm not sure that's a really great thing to say about the church. That political pollsters still take us seriously. But more seriously than that, Satan takes the church seriously. Satan is still roaring. He's still roaming about seeking whom he may devour. Satan, uh, perhaps better than, than any Christian in the church, understands um, the danger that the church poses to his kingdom in the world. I don't know how much this Satan reads the Bible. I've got to assume that as a, as a masquerader of righteousness, as, an, as a pretending angel of light, that he's fairly familiar. He used scripture to try to tempt our Lord into sin. So I imagine he read that passage in Romans 16 that maybe many of us have read but not really thought about, where Paul says to the church at Rome that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Did you ever read that and think about that? Under your feet. The feet of the church. Jesus said when he said to Peter that upon this rock I will build my church, he said the gates of Hades will not overpower it, will not stand against it. Those two passages alone would be enough for Satan to pay attention and take seriously the church. That doesn't mean that he's constantly worried about the church because oftentimes I think he has the church right where he wants her, innocuous, embittered 
internecine fighting within the church, unbelief and heresy within the church, dissension in the church. That makes the church less dangerous to Satan. But I assure you, he never fails to take the church seriously. And finally, God. God takes the church seriously. The Father, who from before the foundation of the world chose those for whom the Son would shed His blood in redemption and in whom the Holy Spirit would take up His dwelling place. The triune God established the body of Christ, the church. And Jesus, as I said last Sunday evening, made it very emphatic in His statement to Peter, I myself will build my church. I myself will build for myself my church. The use of personal pronouns there is emphatic. Well, the last event that we looked at in the book of Acts last year during my session in the pulpit was the, the, the famous incident of Ananias and Sapphira, who, filled in their hearts by Satan, sought to lie to the Holy Spirit, and in a sense to sanctify hypocrisy in the early church. Two professing believers who wanted to infect the young church with a fatal disease of hypocrisy. Ananias was struck dead instantly. And then later, three hours later, when his wife came in and again lied about the amount, though Peter said, it was ever in your control, and when you sold it, you had the right to do whatever you wished with the money. You were not required to sell it. You were not required to bring all of it. You were, in fact, envious of Barnabas, who led by the Holy Spirit did just that. But you were too greedy to give it all and to admit, or to give the part and admit that you were only giving the part. She agreed and said, yeah, I gave, we gave it all. And then she died. Two people dying, very similar, and I think parallel, to the situation of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, at the beginning of the tabernacle period of worship, when they offered up strange fire before the Lord, and the fire came from the altar and consumed them. And the same thing can be said in the incident in Acts, as was said then, when the Lord said to Moses, By those who come before me, I will be holy. Or we may put it in the vernacular, I am not messing around here. I take this seriously. Now, people do not, fortunately and yet sadly, people in the church do not drop dead when they are hypocrites. People in the church do not drop dead when they offer up will worship, as Paul calls it. Worship to God that is not of his own prescription. They do not drop dead. And if that were the case, the churches would be more empty than they are. Because at some point in time, we all participate in will worship. We all are hypocrites. But these events were given to us for our instruction. To let us know that whether it is under the Old Covenant and the Tabernacle and the New Covenant at Pentecost, God takes the church, His body of people on earth, seriously. And there have been times in the history of the church when people inside the church as well as outside the church have taken the church seriously. But it will never be so outside the church. 
until it is first in so, is so inside. It, it will never be the case that those outside the church will take the church seriously when those inside don't. When there is still the attitude of, I can go when I want and where I want and not go if I want. If there's still the division, the dissension, and the bickering within the church, if there's still a new church plant pretty much every week, the church is not taking itself seriously. Why would we expect anybody else to take it seriously? But beyond the question, does anybody take the church seriously, more pertinent to this passage is, is anybody afraid of the church these days? Listen to what we read in verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The whole church was gripped with fear. And so was the community around. The death of Ananias, the death of Sapphira, meant that the presence of God was there among these people in such a way that the only normal human response was fear. Now this isn't that reference that people like to say, you know, it's just reference. No, this is fear, like in terror. Okay? Within the church. Oh, no, 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 no. We, we, we're under a grace. We don't need to be afraid. I think all of us understand that if for a moment we were brought into the presence of the Holy God, as we read in Scripture, we too, even though regenerate, even though believers in Jesus Christ, we too would fall on our faces and say, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And it would only be the grace of God, as in the case of Isaiah, in the case of Peter, in the case of John, it would only be the grace of God that would cause us to stand up again. The proper response to God has always been fear. And here we have an instance when the church was feared. Both within, there was fear, and then from without, there was fear, there was terror, there was understanding of great power. And that's what this passage is talking about. We're not going to get into whether or not miracles are appropriate today. or what. We're not going to get into that, at least not today. The issue is the power of God through the ministry of the apostles. The preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Christ was bringing fear within the church and within the community. But does the church inculcate fear today? Is anybody afraid of the church today? Even Rome once feared for her inquisition and for the power of her interdict or excommunication. There was a time when Rome was feared. Is Rome feared today? No, Rome is ridiculed today. The Pope makes a pronouncement and you can almost hear the entire world go, ha, that's funny. They don't even think the Pope is Catholic these days. And I wonder if he is. He's not very Catholic at least. So, so even the Roman Catholic Church, once, once a, 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 a feared entity in the world, not for good reasons, but for bad, and yet they're not feared. But here we read of great fear, dread, and terror coming over the whole church and all who heard of the fate of Ananias and Sapphira. This was a fear that kept unbelievers away, but drew the elect in. Now this is a concept 
that the Arminian can't get. Okay? That the fear of God will keep the unbeliever away, but draw the elect in. One commentator says, The terror of the Lord effectually persuaded men to take refuge in His mercy. And that makes sense to me. When you are in the presence of an almighty God whose eyes are too pure to look upon sin, and you know that His holiness will utterly consume your sinfulness, what is left for you but to take refuge in His mercy? And that's what we see happening here. A fear that did not come from political or military power, but from the manifestation of God's holy presence in the church. And I would tell you that that is the only time that the church is ever taken seriously in a right way. It is the only church that the church, time the church has ever feared in a right way. It is when the manifestation of God's holy presence is apparent in the church. And, and there are times when this has happened. We call them revivals. This, in fact, was a revival that we're reading about in the book of Acts. It was a revival of true Judaism. The true worship of God. As Jesus said to the woman at the well in Samaria, the day is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, neither in Jerusalem nor on this mountain, but within their hearts and within this, this, this thing that's called the church. This was a revival. And we read of what Jonathan Edwards called uncommon outpourings of the Holy Spirit throughout the history of the church. He was blessed to experience one in the mid-18th century, the Great Awakening. And there have been others, regional and even broader ones, where God has poured out His Spirit and made the Gospel unusually effective. So that many, many people, as we read here, are being brought into the church. But the other effect, if you read the narratives, and I would suggest you read Jonathan Edwards' narrative of surprising conversions and also his, his history of the Great Awakening. I can't forget, the, I can't remember the title, but it's in his collected works. It's remarkable the impact it had on the community. Brothels and bars were closed not by legislative action, but simply by the manifestation of God's holy presence in the church. People didn't go. Even those who didn't participate in the revival, even those who were not saved. As it says here, people refused, they would not associate with them, and yet they held them in high esteem. The word is actually majesty. They held the church. When's the last time the church has been considered majestic? Now, the buildings, the cathedrals, they're what are considered majestic. But when's the last time somebody said, oh, that church is majestic, that church is fabulous? Now, most people's view of the church is that it's a place full of hypocrites. But when the presence of God is in the church, in power, and, and, and let me tell you, things happen during those times that would make us nervous. If you read the narrative of surprising conversions, you will read of things that you're going to say, oh, no, no, we're not going there. Because when God pours out His Spirit, things happen that we can't orchestrate. And I think that as we try to prepare our hearts and make ourselves willing and ready for revival, one of the things we need to do is to hold our conventions very loosely. Because God doesn't hold them the same way we do. But when He is present in His church, 
There is power, fear. There is a, a sense in which the unbeliever wants to stay away and yet has a great respect for the church. And yet God is bringing more and more every day into his church. But the common element throughout the years, the common element to all true revivals, has been the faithful preaching of God's word. Listen to what, Paul, what uh, Luke has to say later on in this very chapter, toward the end of the chapter, in verse 42, he says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That is the instrument of revival. Now that doesn't mean that revival will occur. Revival, the very sense of the word, is that it's a bringing back to life. It's not something that happens all the time, continuously. Sadly, it, it, it goes away. And we pray for revival. But the only way revival will come is if we faithfully kept right on preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. And all that that contains. The whole counsel of Scripture. The truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Paul describes this type of a church in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Listen to his words. He says, starting in verse 24, But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. I would love to see that happen here. By the grace of God through His Holy Spirit, that the preaching of the Word would meet with that type of conviction. That an unbeliever would come through our doors and his heart would be convicted. His sins would be disclosed. He would fall on his face and worship God. And saying, God is surely in your midst. The consistent teaching of the New Testament is that this phenomenon is a function of the church. The gathering of believers together under the teaching of the apostles. G.C. Burkauer writes, It is striking to what a high degree in the whole of the New Testament the church is related to the discovery of the gospel by the world. God has placed as his instrument upon earth in disseminating and preaching the gospel to the world the church. The modern notion of getting sin sinners saved and then sending them to church. And that is modern evangelism, by the way. You know, you each go out individually and you witness to your neighbor and your co-worker and, and then you send them to church. Or you try to get them to go to some rally, revival, evangelistic tent meeting and then you have, you have representatives <coughs> of the churches there so that once these people make a decision for Christ, and I do not like that phrase, but that's kind of the air quotes. You would have a church for them to go to. So they're saved, and then they, then they go to the church. But Paul says, no, you are baptized into one body. That the church is the instrumentality of the gospel. And so how can we not take it seriously? If we believe that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. Now, I'm not saying that people aren't saved through those other methods. By God's grace, I was I was not saved in a church. God is gracious. But that doesn't mean our methods are right. 
Okay, God's grace will, will abound even when our sin and our error abound. But that doesn't mean we continue in either our sin or our error. We cannot discount the importance of the church. But what is the church? Verse 11, interestingly, to me at least, is the first time we read the word church in the book of Acts. It's first usage of the term. The term is ecclesia. It's translated in most English Bibles as the church. But how do we get church from ecclesia? The word church, where did it come from? And is it a good word to use? There, there are those who are translating the Bibles now who are, are using a more accurate translation of the word ecclesia. And instead of using the word church, they're using the word assembly or congregation. And that's a better English translation, but theologically a worse translation. Where did the word church come from? Well, let's look at the word ecclesia first. It is a Greek word, literally it means called out. Ek, out of, and, and uh, to call ecclesia. It signifies an assembly brought together by command or purpose. It's used in the, the broader Greek language very frequently for political reasons, for, for local militia being called out to defend the city, or for religious assemblies, festivals. It's a very pagan term. It's a very civic term, political term, military term. In fact, it is a very broad term. It corresponds with the word synagogue, which we think of as a Hebrew term, but is in fact Greek. Synagogue means to go with or to come together. They're very similar. And so the Jews would come together on the Lord's or the Sabbath to their synagogue. But both of these words actually correspond to a Hebrew word that we find in the Old Testament, kahal. In fact, in the Greek Old Testament, ekklesia is the common Greek word used to translate the Hebrew word kahal, which simply means the assembly. Okay, so, so we look at it and we say, okay, it's an assembly. We'll call ourselves the Assemblies of God. Or we'll call ourselves um, Bible Christian Assembly. And you, you see that, assembly. Or we'll, re, we'll rewrite our Bibles or retranslate them. And everywhere ecclesia is, we'll put in the word assembly and we'll take out the word church. You, have you noticed that many modern churches are actually taking the word church out of their names? They're putting in words like velocity. I see that one thing. What is that? I need one that's called decelerate. <laughs> Velocity. I don't even know what that is, and I don't want to know what that is. But it's, it's really kind of funny because we get together at 10 o'clock on Sunday, but we're not a church. <laughs> Fooled you. Okay. It is a church, but we take the name out. We also take out the name, of course, we take out Presbyterian or, or Baptist. We, we take those out, too, because marketing has told us that those put people off. You know, if you put the word Baptist in your church name, the people won't come because they have a, a preconceived idea. So we're changing the name of our church thinking that's somehow going to change the church. But I don't think taking the word church out of the New Testament is a good idea. The roots of the English word church, if you, you think of it this way, the C-H 
that we, we have a ch sound. In the German, it's a hard k, like Bach. So the church is actually derived from the German kick or the Scottish kirk. Okay? It's the same, same word. And um, there are those who think that that word derives from the Latin circus. I haven't been in the ministry for almost 30 years. I think yes. <laughs> That's the root of the church. Circus. <laughs> no, that is not the root. In fact, most scholars would reject that and, and they realize that it comes from the Greek Kyriakos, which means belonging to the Lord. It's only used twice in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Day. Kyriakos is the root of kek, which is the root of church, belonging to the Lord. And, and so this word, in fact, even Constantine, who as we learned in Sunday school, uh, kind of got a bad name among the, the, the Anabaptists, but several of the places of worship that he had commissioned, he called Kyriakta, belonging to the Lord. You see, it's not a literal translation of ecclesia. It's a theological one. Because the word ecclesia is so general, it's so broad, it's just another gathering. It could be, um, it could be a, a book club. It, it could be a, a woman's auxiliary. Okay, it could be military veterans. Any of these things could be an ecclesia. But this ecclesia is curious. This assembly is not just a bunch of people getting together. This is an assembly of people who belong to the Lord. And so, yes, assembly is a better literal translation of the word ecclesia. But I would say that though it's not a biblical term, kyriakos is church. In many ways, the word church is as meaningful to our understanding of God's purpose as the word trinity, which is also not a biblical term. So when you get a new Bible and you see that they've, they've, they've very self-righteously taken out the word church and put in the word assembly, please understand that while they are technically correct, they are theologically in very, very dangerous waters of just making the church an, another social, political, or religious ecclesia, of which there were thousands in the Roman world. But here was one, and only one, that belonged to the Lord. One author says, the church has not arisen from her own initiative, and I would add, nor from the calling of any government agency. It did not arisen from its own initiative, but has been called gathered and chosen as the people of God obtained by the blood of the cross. You're starting to take the church seriously? The gathering of God's people belonging to the Lord. He takes it seriously. In this passage we, we read that that fear that came upon the people in verse 13, none of the rest dared to associate them and then in verse 14, and all the more believers in the Lord were constantly added to their number. This appears to be a contradiction. In fact, this is where I said earlier, Arminian commentaries just don't know what to do with this. Because on the one hand, Luke is saying nobody would associate. One of the commentators actually says that this means that the believers would not associate with the apostles because they were afraid of them. 
Well, that's kind of plausible, you know? Last two people who talked to Peter died. <laughs> so we're going to hang back. I don't think that was it at all. The very sense of it is that there was, a, there was a, an attitude of the people outside the church that said, let these people alone. Later on, we're going to read the Council of Gamaliel. And exactly that is what he says. Let these people alone. Because if it's of themselves, if it's not of the Lord, it will pass. But if it's of the Lord, you will find yourself fighting against God. That's the kind of fear that, that, that manifests God's holy presence within the church. They fail to see the Arminian who looks at this and, and cannot understand how these two verses work. They fail to see the voice of the verbs in verse 13. None of the rest dared to join with them. That's an active voice. None of the rest dared to, to bring themselves into the assembly, into that ecclesia, that kyriakos. And then verse 14, all the more believers were constantly added. That's passive. Because we don't add ourselves to the church. We are added. We don't decide for ourselves, for Jesus. He decides for us. He is the one who has chosen us, as Paul writes from before, the foundation of the earth. And he is the one who adds us into the church. We do not add ourselves. Now we may think, yes, I decided to go to this or that church. And that's true. But the reality of being grafted in is a work of God. I pray that this statement made by William Arnaud would be true of our church. He writes that the meaning of this is that those who were not of them dared not pretend to be of them. Now, that's a powerful statement. That, that's the kind of church. Now, in our day, we have those who teach us that the church is for unbelievers, that we should bring in more and more unbelievers. One famous modern writer on church growth thinks that if you're starting a church, you need to consult unbelievers and ask them what things would attract them and encourage them to come. What kind of music? What kind of preaching? What kind of seating? What kind of ambiance? That's the, that's the purpose-driven church, by the way. That's the teaching of Rick Warren. That it's the unbelievers. The church is for unbelievers. That's not the biblical view. In fact, an unbeliever, as Paul wrote in Corinthians, should not be comfortable in the church. And what does it say in a church where the unbeliever feels at home? Can one who does not belong to the Lord feel comfortable in the midst of those that do? Can any unbeliever living knowingly and willingly in his or her sin be comfortable in the midst of God's holy presence within his people? The answer is no. And when God does pour out His Spirit, when God does manifest Himself in that powerful way, His holiness within the church, then this is what happens. The others outside dare not associate. And over the years, we have had in our midst believe unbelievers. And about the only thing that I can say in comfort in many cases that those people would leave before we took communion. At least when we came to the table in communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, 
That there was, a, there was enough sense of conscience to leave the place. But if we can be a place, if we can be a gathering where unbelievers can sit and feel at home and feel that they belong, then there's something wrong. The presence of God's holiness is not in our midst. I'm not saying that we need to make the, unbelievable, the unbeliever uncomfortable. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that you know, the, that those who were not of them dared not pretend to be of them. There dare not be any hypocrisy. That was fatal. Look at Ananias, look at Sapphira. And it was fatal to the church if hypocrisy were allowed. Thomas Beck writes, the church is a society of faithful or believing men called by God through the word out of the whole human race to the communion of the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. Faithful, believing men called by God through the word out of the whole human race. There's no racism. There's no prejudice. There's only Christ and Him crucified. And that enough, that scandalon, that stumbling block is enough to make the unbeliever uncomfortable. And so may it be that while we are friendly, while we are welcoming, while we are accepting that we never be so leveling with the gospel that an unbeliever might join with us and never feel conviction. Let us pray. Father, we know that you take the church seriously, that you have promised what you have begun, that good work, that you will bring it to perfection, that Jesus will indeed by himself, build his church for his glory and for yours. So Father, we pray that we might have the same attitude that is in Jesus and also in you, thinking your thoughts after you, that we might take seriously the church and indeed each one of us might see and understand ourselves as joints and ligaments within the body of Christ and that we might earnestly pray that you would pour out your spirit once again and make your holy presence known that we might even, by your grace, by your mercy, experience this that the early disciples did in Acts chapter 5. Father, we pray this for your glory and for the building up of your church, for the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand toward the benediction from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, an unusual benediction but simply a doxology to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen.